0: down and listen to records smell the cover read all the verses Tell me about your
1: favorites on vinyl and hello and welcome to the newest episode of vinyl and vision I am your host Jimmy Drab, and this is my show tonight's special guest is John Tabor Jacobson uh, best known around the city as JJ Um... JJ, I had only gotten to, to meet finally after a long mytho- mythological uh, existence to me uh, as this this figurehead in the Providence music scene of like that just knew everybody. Anybody that was anybody that I knew musically always told me stories about JJ, and so I thought it was uh, pretty uh, pretty significant to be able to speak with him, get him get him on the show to to just talk about the history a little bit in the in the city. Uh, as far as the scene is concerned. Because um, we have an amazing music scene in Rhode Island. Like, I, I've never been one to try to push it here on the show. But uh, obviously, all of my guests ha- are, are from uh, from Rhode Island, uh, mostly, actually. But um, but even Peter Prescott, in my last interview from the last episode, had said he's just like, he has been blown away by the amount of talent that we have in this city. And he's right. He's absolutely correct. And I didn't actually give that statement enough uh, enough uh, credit on the epi- on the previous episode. And I just want to acknowledge that now because JJ as well feels the same um, about the music scene and the musicians here in the city. And I have to agree with them. I have to absolutely agree. It's why we are very we are very fortunate here. So those of you who are listening and tuning in from outside of the state. Um, Listen listen up, guys. We're, we're here, okay? And um, he, JJ gave me these. He found some, uh, some split seven-inch singles that he had put out with his old label, uh, Over-The-Counter Records, OTC, um, back in the early to mid-'90s. And uh, these are very, very rare. Um, I'm not going to say that they are extremely valuable. Um, I think that they're kind of valuable, because I've been hearing a lot about this band, especially Von Ryan's Express, Um, Dan St. Jakes, the former guest of mine from the first or the second episode, technically, um, was in this band, and he mentions how this was the first band he was in, and there's been a lot of talk on the social media uh, recently that I caught about this band and how there's very little uh, recorded evidence of them even existing. So this is one piece of it. Uh, It's only one song, and I'm going to play it for you because I want you to hear it and... uh, if you want a copy of this, Bon uh, Ryan's Express Split 7-inch with the Laurels. Uh, Laurel's also an amazing uh, local province band back from the early 90s. Um, message me, please. Send me a message. Uh, email me through the podcast uh, songcrafter666 at gmail.com. Uh, follow me on social medias. Uh, you can find my on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, you can message me there. Send me a DM. Don't make it gross. Don't make it a dick pic. Uh, don't care for it. And, um, yeah, message me about this. Um, I'd like to kick some of this money to, to JJ, obviously, because they're his first and foremost. Um, I just, he just knew I was a record seller, so he was just like, try to sell these ones. I'd have a few of them. Uh, so I have about like 15 of these right now. So, uh, yeah, just send a message. We'll work it out. I'll send you a PayPal link or something and I'll chip it off to you. And as far as the show is concerned, JoJo's awesome, man. Just listen up. He's, uh, was a great little talk we had. Um, the video is a little shorter. I actually cut it down a lot, uh, about a little over half an hour. And that's only because... Um, I screwed up and I messed up one of my cameras so I only got one camera angle. I was just like well we're using it as like a trailer for the uh, episode so if you like what you're seeing on the video tune into the full length audio uh, stream uh, anywhere you find your podcasts and uh, you can get the full story there and uh, for now listen to this message me do all the things you do with the internet and thank you we appreciate it
2: uh we should be fine. are we rolling we're rolling babe awesome how are you JJ I'm doing pretty good I'm a little sleepy but the coffee I just had uh, yeah uh, hopefully will start taking effect soon does it does it hit you hard the coffee not really um, I am perpetually exhausted huh. um, I think I, I don't know if I told you this I take some crazy uh, uh, a targeted chemotherapy
1: yeah.
2: drug called Sprycel for leukemia. Right. So uh, it keeps me alive. Without it, I would die. So. Right. But uh, one of the byproducts is just fatigue. So I probably drink about a half a gallon of coffee a day. Oh wow. To just keep. So it's 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 not really like it kicks in. It's just like keeping. Uh. <laughs> otherwise, I'll just I'll be like a narcoleptic. I'll just like fall asleep right yeah. during the interview. Did you used to drink a lot of coffee, or no? This is a uh, this is a no, side effect. I mean, the- I was like normal people. If you know, you drink a half a gallon of coffee, you're gonna get the jitters. But mm-hmm. um, I never, never get the jitters.
1: You can just have a cup and just go straight back to sleep.
2: Yeah, yeah. I'm actually, I'm actually like that
1: now. So I wonder yeah. if I'm sick.
2: Yeah, it's a tolerance thing plus <laughs> a
1: fatigue thing. So you had uh, you had leukemia, and as of right now, you are in remission. Is that the correct term?
2: Yeah. Well, uh, what do they call it? It's a uh, the technical term is. Complete molecular response. So what that means is that the drugs they're giving me um, is preventing there from being any uh, detectable leukemia in my system. Hmm. But um, I did go on a trial run of going off of it because some people can stay off of it after a couple years. And it came back within 40 days. Oh, my God. So now I'm uh, on it for a five-year course before they might try that again. So definitely... um, definitely altered my life uh, yeah. getting diagnosed with leukemia. Actually, that's right when I was working with you when I'm uh, at Creighton Barrow oh, yeah. was when I had it, but I didn't know it. I knew something was wrong, but I wasn't sure. I didn't have healthcare at the time. yeah. So um then when I got diagnosed and went through all that, it was uh, definitely a milestone in my life. I'm sure it would be. I mean, as it would be for anybody, I
1: think. I mean, that's you know, facing, facing death, right? Like the possibility of it. And
2: yeah, it was, for me, it was two things. It was, um, it was getting used to the medication. So like the physical part of that and just feeling, um, like I couldn't take care of myself, at least, especially at the beginning, there's like a, there's, um, a phase with the medication where you have to get used to it. And that was just brutal. I was Mm. on a couch for, um, like, uh, three months basically. Getting you know having headaches and just getting used to it. Yeah. And the other one was the financial part of it because the medication, if it's if if it's not subsidized, and almost everyone gets some form of, uh, no one pays full retail, but it is one hundred eighty thousand a year. Mm. The pills five hundred dollars a day. Jesus So Christ. that figuring out how to navigate that was um, a tricky situation.
1: Yeah even with health insurance because you started this well, after I you got, got
2: Obamacare. That's okay. how I found out I had it because, um, I, you know, I was just like had all kinds of kind of complaints and they started just running tests. Yeah. I'd had, uh, seen a doctor in maybe seven years and, um, and then, yeah, they came back that I, that they, they detected something and then I got all these tests and then, um, uh, with, with the, with, the healthcare that I have, it's not it's not a big deal, as big a deal financially. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's good. I mean, because yeah. I have health insurance, and I don't think that mine covers much
1: of anything. Yeah, I'm uh, kind of scared to see if anything happens, uh, and me trying to, you know, call up and use some of it for for whatever reason.
2: Basically, like well, the way that it works in America is if if you, if, you, if it gets really weird or off the rails, people um go bankrupt, and then the, you get Medicaid, um. And, uh, or a variety of other strategies. You figure it out, but it's not mm. logical. It's, yeah. um,
1: you, you, yeah. It's more like survival tactics.
2: Yeah. A lot of people who have cancer definitely go bankrupt oh, because God. of, uh, well, cause also you get your, you can't really provide for yourself. So in my case, I'm, I'm a single man. I don't have like a family that lives around here. So, yeah, um, like supporting myself and everything. Yeah. It becomes a, a little bit of a. tricky situation luckily in my case um it's taken a while to figure uh things out and untangle kind of a big a mess
0: Mm -hmm.
2: but um i finally uh as of really probably this summer feel as though i uh i'm used to the new normal don't feel like i'm in a free fall financially or health-wise and yeah that's um, great yeah it's, it's definitely good i'm glad to hear it man um, I don't know if this will be part of the... Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, it will be?
1: Okay, I, hope, I mean, at least a little bit. I think that it's uh, interesting for people to know. While you were talking about this, because, I mean, I don't think I've ever talked to anybody, even not on the show. I mean, like, just just even my personal life, anyone that has had uh, any kind of, like, major cancer.
2: Mm. Um, and I still can't believe it. it. It still seems kind of unreal to me. Yeah. But... Um, yeah, it's a weird. I mean, my, mine's CML leukemia, so it's um, it's a kind of an interesting uh, cancer because it's a really aggressive cancer. Mm-hmm. The way you, the way I would die from this if I didn't have this medication, is my white blood cells would um, keep replicating and not maturing, and crowd out every other type of cell, and eventually my bones would explode. Jesus Christ! And um, yeah, once your bones explode. It's, game over. That sounds like a really painful uh, yeah. death too. Um yeah, it would really <laughs> suck. So but the upside to the can- this cancer is that um it's really stupid is what the doctors say. So in other words it can't mutate. Hmm. So it's one of the very first what they call targeted chemotherapies where they um they have a pill that you take that blocks the mutation. Yeah. The pill has um depending on where you are in life and your health and uh, varying side effects From people um, I'm on a couple Like user groups online Like support groups From very mild To minimal Side effects hmm. To can't Can't stay on it Like Because the, the quality of life Is It's yeah. just so horrific Jesus um, I'm like in the middle So Wow I'm
1: a lucky one to freak out all the hypochondriacs, what are, what kind of symptoms did you were you experiencing before you realized or before you got diagnosed?
2: Well, that's that's kind of it was um, fatigue mainly, and just yeah. kind of. Um, it wasn't just brain mono. fog. I, think- <laughs> I mean, I was like, I just thought I was getting old, or I don't know what was going on. Like every, right. everyone I know is exhausted, and yeah. overwhelmed. And I'm I'm extremely tired. I'm yeah. scared for my life now. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, uh, but the blood work. Yeah, came back and um, they they had run blood work, I think, just for cholesterol, like just to do normal blood work stuff. And then my white blood cell count was off the charts. And that's how you that's how they're like, hmm,
1: that became Um, suspicious to them. Yeah. And and then then you go
2: to a rheumatologist and oncologist and actually the way the way they found out uh, in the end was um, they do a. a bone marrow tap, I guess, is what you call it. Oh, and um, I mean, we could. Do you want me to continue with the cancer story? A, <laughs> well, well, I'll tell. So it's a kind of a funny story, actually. This, okay. the, 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 the uh, bone marrow tap. So um, it turns out my oncologist—I and I don't think she ever knew it—and I never told her before I got a new one. I had asked her out on a bunch of dates on OkCupid, okay Cupid, <laughs> right? So I it was kind of just a funny situation from the get-go. Cause yeah. I I, uh, I went in there and just like, oh, here's this, here's this like hot and it was also the first time I've ever had a doctor that was like kind of my age. Oh. You know, like this, you know, she was a very accomplished And you were
1: obviously already interested in her.
2: I was interested so in that her. Makes Definitely. It a little awkward, she yeah. was a she was a pretty lady. <laughs> and so um it was a very bizarre procedure because she also had a very attractive friend nurse. And to do this, you kind of have to get naked and put on your pants oh, okay. and you're like, I was on my side yeah. with like my ass, you know, In their pointed direction. At, at them and they put on the television <laughs> and the television for some reason was a woman that was smashing stuff with her breasts. I have no idea why that was on the television, but it was just, like, kind of... And then they, they eventually they, changed it. Did they need you to be aroused? I don't understand what's No, happening. no. They just, like, they wanted to put something on to just distract Oh, me. it just happened to be... And it was happened to be that. Hmm. Um, I think it was, like, it wasn't, like, naked because it was in a... It was in, a, um, like, a bikini top. Okay. But, you know, it's just like, smashing beer cans and melons and stuff. Um, so it was a very surreal situation, and... Um, but it's painful because um when you're doing a um a tap into the bone they they're like drilling into the bone yeah. right and so they numb the area and so that's not very painful but it was taking forever huh. and i'm like looking behind her and it's like she's like i mean it wasn't sexual at all but it was just a funny farcical yeah. situation cuz she's breaking a sweat and she's like just like pounding <laughs> you know like behind me and i'm just like you know, taking it kind of yeah. really, not in the ass, but right next to the ass. Oh, wow.
1: And... Um, I wonder why they have to tap there.
2: Uh, it's <laughs> it's the it's like the big bone right, like, you know... Yeah. Right there, like right at the... Like, I have a little dimple there. Huh. But anyway, so... Um, I, f- I think that the shin is more exposed here, isn't it? <laughs> maybe, but the, for some reason they like, or maybe maybe she was, uh, you know... Taking
1: advantage taking of the advantage situation. Taking advantage of the situation. Yeah.
2: Could have been a, like some kind of weird... Dr. Me Too moment, but, um, probably not. Well, maybe she
1: (laughs) realized you from the profile, which is like, put you through the ringer. Yeah. Put you through the full test before she. Yeah. She was going to see how tough I
2: was. Yeah. But, um, so it, it gets going on and on. She's breaking a sweat. I'm starting to be like, geez, what's going on? And, um, eventually she broke through. Right. And when, uh, at that point there's no numbing in there. And that was a very distinct, horrible, unique pain once. Um, yeah. And then they go in there and then they grab um, a piece of marrow. Um, hmm. So anyway, um, and then shortly thereafter, I got another oncologist and she disappeared. She went to Boston. But um, so and also right after that, I got on a, um, a mega bus to New York City mm-hmm. and um, didn't realize that it wasn't going to be good to sit for you know, for a long time. I probably would to have just laid on my belly. So I was on a mega bus oh. for three and a half hours with a bunch of rowdy girls who were going to see like the Today Show or something, you know, and uh, they were drinking just like crazy. And, and then, and just being noisy and obnoxious. And when they got off the bus, um, I was like, where are you guys staying? They're like, no, we're just going to stay up all night. We have Ritalin. And like they, they went off into New York City, and I'm like, wow, a bunch of girls from Western—they were from West Warwick, you know—probably oh. like 18, yeah. all wasted, high on Ritalin, just gonna stay up all night until the Today Show. That that probably didn't go so well. It's the land of but. dreams, New York City. Really,
1: <laughs> I mean, I was telling Corey on the way here actually my my New York stories and how there's not a single good unfuzzy memory I have of being in New York City. Like I used to always go there and just make a fucking time of it just going out. It is a good place. Trash.
2: It is a good place to, uh, to let your freak flag fly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I do miss it. These girls were trouble and they didn't make, you know, the fact that I was in pain the whole time. Oh, any more pleasant. screaming teenagers or whatever. But yeah. So anyway, that's, so that's how I found out that I for sure, uh, had it was they actually did a sample of the marrow. Hmm. They looked at it. Oh, there, there was, um, it's called, I think the fish test. I forget, there's so many. I get blood work every three months. Hmm. And they um, they do different levels. But the, the ultimate one, I think, is called the, the uh, fish test. Yeah. P H I S H. I have no idea why it's called that. Hmm. Um, and then. Is it they're a big fan of the band? Is it I don't know. A, uh, that's, yeah, I didn't even yeah. think of the, uh, <laughs> the fish reference. But it's the fish test. And the goal is to hit complete molecular response, yeah. CMR. And I am CMR.
1: Cool. Congratulations, man. So,
2: there's um, my there's my leukemia story.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you. I mean, I, I think that it's interesting. I think that some people, you know, maybe that don't know about it very well. It's kind of interesting to kind of know about it. I mean, that's why
2: I ask. Yeah.
1: Uh, I didn't intend to bring up your your illness, but it's uh, it's all part of the story, really.
2: If you want to go back to uh, early Providence, and c- that ties in more to this. Yeah. Definitely ties into this the record of choice. Yes. Um. When I was at RISD, um, I followed a lot of bands and it, I think it was my senior year, or like shortly thereafter, um, started a record label. And mm-hmm. um, wait, where am I going with this? I you started it. a label? So is that
1: SoundStation yeah. 7 label? Sound no, Station 7 no, 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 no. No,
2: I started um, actually to, to be technically, to be um, completely accurate, it was Lonely Fat Boy Records at first. Mm-hmm. And, um, that there's a guy, James Schneider and, okay. um, another, um, Joyce, I'm going to forget her last name cause she, cause, uh, she married my friend, Matt White, uh, Joy is Joyce Raskin. Is that the bassist from, from Scars? Yeah. Yes.
1: Joyce Raskin is okay.
2: her name. Yeah. Um, uh, she was in a band with James Schneider called Mr. 1000. Okay. And I just hastily helped them put that out. But then I got a little more, uh, serious about it. Um, didn't want people to think I was the lonely fat boy. Okay. Uh, because it was just it was just a, a I don't know where that came about. It was something that, um, I think James and I were trying to brainstorm record label ideas, and that just was thrown out there.
1: Mm-hmm. But
2: then, um, the the idea came up for over the counter records. Okay. OTC. Yeah. And simultaneously, Ben McCosker was starting Load Records. And for a little bit there, like if you uh. I think the first Boss Fuel or second Boss Fuel single was Mm -hmm. a joint release between us. Okay. Um, And at some point, I I realized that um, I didn't really like record label stuff at all. It wasn't my forte, but recording was. Okay. So uh, I really liked, um, and I really like uh, uh, collaboration a lot. I like uh, working with artists to help them realize a vision. Yeah. It's a lot of fun.
1: So, do you kind of consider yourself, at least at that time, to have been more of a producer?
2: Uh, not producer so much, maybe Just a the little engineer, bit, like more of an engineer, more kind yeah. of classic of that. I mean, a lot of people were doing uh, four ca- four track, eight track cassette, real DIY. Right. So, like the idea of having a producer, yeah, was kind of would have been kind of silly. I was I envisioned it more. Also, I don't have a, a ton of like, um like, musical experience, or, like, I I consider a traditional producer to be, like, like, when I watched Tom Buckland do the Royal Crowns, he, like, went into rehearse, they worked on the hooks, they worked on um, the structure Mm. of the songs, you know, like, really got got into the musicianship. Right. You know what I mean? And um, I would never do that with bands. Okay. Actually, what, what, what happened was... Uh, and this ties into The Wailing Ultimate, was that we ended up doing a compilation record, two of them. One was A Bitter Pill to Swallow. Okay. And then um, this, and the second one was, uh, and that w- this was on load, was Repopulation Program.
1: Okay, I remember that one.
2: Yeah, and by that time, um, the studio was set up in what became Fort Thunder. It wasn't called that at, at that point. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I just set up a studio, and just we would have bands come and record every day. Oh, okay. Um, so yeah, I briefly tried to do um, a record label. Realized selling music is no fun. I've I had zero I had zero interest in it really. Yeah. Um, I put out some things, um, but ended up focused on the recording, and then uh, actually opened a recording studio, Sound Station Seven. Yeah which was uh, in an old firehouse. Right. In fact, fe- like... I 1870. Guess, M- Mount Pleasant. Um, valley, Federal hill
1: Is that technically Valley?
2: It That is actually called Bear Hill or something weird. Okay. It's like where... It's
1: like only Villa meets Valley meets Mount Pleasant. It's kind of like yeah, right in that yeah. triangular area.
2: It, and it, it is... It was... A, it's a freaky, freaky location. I mean, it
1: was. I mean, I actually had never gone to the... Stu- like... I had known about the studio. I think I maybe went for like maybe a party or something, but I never recorded there. Yeah. I was never with any bands hanging out there. But yeah, so it was kind of like a legendary spot for in my memory.
2: Yeah, it it, it um now there's more spread of people throughout the Providence. Mm-hmm. I mean, you got to remember I remember like when like this goes back to early 90s, late 80s like the 6 Finger Satellite House down on like 6th Street or whatever it was. The Parlor in Pawtucket. No, no, no. This was in the east side. Oh, okay. So like, so like the alternative or like the cheap apartments were just get away from Brown a little bit on right. like Sixth Street, you know, like off Hope. Okay. Um, and then there was a certain point. It was just economics. Like the rents keep going up, and then people sort jumped to the uh, to the to the west, west side, of prominence. And, um, Federal Hill, this area, the Armory, and there was always stuff going on in the mills down yeah. in Olneyville and stuff. That, but. In terms of people living in apartments around here, um, in my experience, that started in the '90s, and, mm. and you know, what was a big factor. of That was uh, an early adopter was where Julian's is. Like that was, um, yeah, a really important outpost at the time for people to uh, go there and uh, meet up and stuff. You know, right? Because because at that time there really wasn't a whole lot of stuff. On that's when I moved uh, to the firehouse because it was. Um, there had just been another a real estate crash at that point in the, in like the beginning of the nineties here. Yeah. There was, um, some big banking crisis. Cool. You know,
1: <laughs> so you took advantage of it. I mean, to yeah, find there, a building. Yeah.
2: And, and so, and I was working at, um, uh, a typography place, faces typography. And I was delivering stuff to a record label there. They were a classical record label.
1: That um, was in that same called
2: Newport day. classics that oh, was okay. in the, in the firehouse oh. and they weren't recording at all. They were, they were a label. And um, the sign went up. So I would drop off uh, proofs and stuff for, um, because they would uh, have to get films printed to do you know, like their CDs and stuff. Yeah. And we outputted the, fr- the films for people. Hmm. Um, and I saw the for sale sign and I was like, oh, wow. And they, they had been bought by Sony. So for them, they didn't care because um, although they sold it at a really cheap price, uh, they were looking for tax write-off. So it was just like a unique time, uh, in Providence, you know, I caught it at a, at a, uh, you know, a valley in pricing and then, um, and then went over the top on the build out, um, you know, kind of really first class kind of stuff. And by doing that for everything, but like I did some budget mastering, a lot of local bands couldn't afford it. So we, we ended up, um, kind of shopping internationally, but and, and that kind of, t- like, there were a lot of local bands that still work there, but oh, yeah. um, for the most part, it changed the dynamic. I thought it was going to be like, um, like Fort Apache maybe in Boston or yeah. Q Division or something like. One but, of the more upscale studios in, in the region. Yeah, and people with budgets, basically. And right. th- um Because I really thought Providence was going to be like the next, I you know, I've always thought that, like, just h- held it in high regard. But physically. didn't realize that it's a small community. There's only, you know, one hundred eighty thousand people in in Providence, right? And um, and that things were really budget. Plus, there was a the uh, at that time. Uh, I started before the noise scene here, mm-hmm. right? Um, and the noise scene. Although I love uh, noise recorded really high fidelity. Like I like my noise. I don't want more noise on top of my noise. Um, but there, but there was a lot of people just, you know, for tracking it and, right. uh, the, the need for fidelity wasn't really there or, or yeah. the budget. So yeah. I, um, kind of moved away from the local music scene and promoting it and just went into keeping the business alive.
1: Right. So reaching out to like uh, more regional and national acts and you got some of them. Yeah, you got a pretty pretty good roster of like. Well, you work artists. with anyone.
2: I mean, when you're a recording studio, it's not like that was a thing. Was that I was really passionate about music, and you yeah. you work with bands that you love. You work with bands that you can't stand. We work with Joey McIntyre from New Kids on the Block. Yeah, I saw that. Um, <laughs> work with Striper. Work with um, who is the um, the piano player lady with the red hair? Um, Tori Amos. Yeah, Tori Amos. Oh, really? She did a live thing um, with BRU there. Oh, okay. And uh, the Boston's came in and a bunch of different things. Um, yeah. And bands who toured would stay there. Oh, yeah. Because um, it actually had, had like a housing unit
1: too, right? Like yeah, it was apartment. like a bed and
2: breakfast type cool. of thing. The music business is wild and recording is wild. Um, we had a guy show up, um, a rap act from, uh, was it Ohio? Hmm. But, uh, and, and the producer showed up with a, just a suitcase full of money. Um, you know, and that guy's name was, it was Jahari. He was a really nice guy. Yeah. Um, but he smoked just an amazing amount of weed. Yeah. Um, yeah, you run into all kinds of crazy situations. Um, some of the f- most fun was being able to have bands that I liked that were touring come back Yeah. and stay. Because sometimes we'd go downstairs and, and play music and, um... One of my favorites was um, Nashville Pussy, who I, I, I knew Corey, the bass, bass player, yeah, f- uh, through friends. She was dating a friend of mine, but uh, um, what is it, Ryder? Yeah, Ryder, who is, was dating one of the other guys in the band.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, she signed her panties and like put it up on the wall <laughs> as her like little calling card. And I'll never forget that.
1: Yeah. Wow, that's amazing.
2: But yeah, the, um, Sound Station 7 was a lot of fun, and we had a lot of pretty legendary Christmas party, and... Yeah, um,
1: I've heard about the Christmas parties. I don't think I've been to one.
2: I think the first one, Combustible Edison played, and I do have a recording of that somewhere. Oh, cool. All the master tapes and stuff are over at Machines with Magnets.
1: Oh, yeah? Because they yeah. bought your tape machine when
2: the studio well, closed, right? there's like a lineage of recording in Rhode Island... Um, the, at least the way that I see it, that yeah. I don't know a lot of people kind of know it. Uh, Normandy Sound was in Warren and they mm-hmm. really were a huge uh, um, recording studio. Yeah. And they were at a recording studio in the time before digital where you kind of had to go to a big studio to get uh, a professional sound. You didn't have a choice really. right? Um, and they initially made their money on New Kids on the Block. Oh, okay. This is in Little War in Rhode Island, right? Yeah, yeah. And with, with an absolute madman um, by the name of Phil Green at the helm. And they had other. They had another producer there. I forget his name. But um, they ended up doing a lot of hardcore from, uh, actually,
1: yeah. New
2: York City. And they did a, um, we were talking about uh, Mission of Burma. Yeah. They did a M- Mission of Burma, I think, album there. Okay. The first breeders thing was like there's a lot of interesting indie stuff, but also yeah. the most um over-the-top um kind of commercial, like New Kids and Marky Mark and stuff was all done there. <laughs> wow. um, that's how I actually ended up working with Johnny Mac- McIntyre from New Kids at SoundStation. He remembered you from then? No, what happened was Um when Normandy went out of business, we we had built a really good um like waterproof, you know, uh, um, I don't know, waterproof, but like a, a tape vault essentially for all the, for all the, um, analog tape that we had, yeah. uh, in the basement. And he needed to get rid of everything at Normandy cause it was, it was done. So we got a lot of, uh, crazy master tapes and we had all the Marky Mark stuff and we had all the new kids in the blocks, uh, master tapes in huh. the basement. And yeah. he came one day, um, And I think he was totally freaked out initially because that neighborhood is very, especially at the time, was very sketchy. Yeah, I can imagine. And um, he picked him up. And then then we just like struck up um, a conversation and I was always pitching the studio. And um, he actually rented it to rehearse um, a gospel choir for the 92.3 Pro FM Christmas party at the Westin Hotel with Cher and a bunch of other people. And I give him credit because Cher and everyone else, most of them did a, a lip sync kind of thing. Yeah. He brought a full-on um there's some pretty good gospel groups in Providence. Yeah. And he had a full-on gospel thing and he did his little Christmas show. Wow. But they rehearsed it all in the studio.
1: Wow. That's amazing.
2: Um Yeah. yeah. So so back to the um the time with the machines of the magnets. Normandy Sound was around and really, you know, they had an SSL, they had really tricked out equipment and um, Phil and the people there really knew about um, all the kind of analog stuff and, and tricks of, of the trade that, you know, I was just learning and, and um, also some of it was having a revival again, like Neumann microphones, people were looking for those. They hadn't reissued a lot of that stuff. Oh. And they had all that stuff and you could go and talk to them and geek out. Um, and then when they um, when they closed down, I got a few things from them Um gear-wise, but it was mainly Rob Pemberton. Um, I don't know. The engineer him. there yeah. came and was the chief engineer and also tech. Oh, He's okay. a, he, he could um, you know, rear rewire the board, um, you know, build the microphones from scratch. He was a true oh. kind of technician, yeah. and I did not have that skill. And if you're going to have a, a pro studio, you really need an in-house tech. Yeah. Um, so Rob and I, um, a couple other people um, – did Sound Station 7. And then at the time, um, wow, this really goes way back. So um, Keith Souza had a studio in his basement in Tiverton. And then yeah. he moved that studio, and we kept in contact, and he moved it to East Providence. I remember that place. Yep. I've been there. That was really cool. Yeah. Um, and we would go over there and kind of exchange things. And he was dating someone whose father was working on the job site of Sound Station 7 when we were building it okay. and he would come over and there's a lot of exchange there, you know, mm-hmm. and I think that, um, uh, I don't think it was jealousy at all. It was just like, he was aware that he could go over there and, and talk about, and see stuff, you know, that We we were working with a budget for equipment and stuff that was uh, way above what what he was um, working with at the time. Oh, okay. You know, yeah. so, a little, little
1: envious there or kind of like, kind of curious, like how... I don't like, think it was
2: envious at all. I think it was Curiosity,
1: just... I mean, because he obviously wanted to build a studio. He did already build one in East Providence, which, I mean, I don't know how much he built, but he it definitely was like, worked on it. Uh, there Was is definitely... it
2: collegial? Is that the right word? Like... Yeah. It was like... A, I think so. It was like a... You know, people like, you know, if you're, if you work in the same thing, you go out for drinks afterwards yeah. and you bullshit about the bands. Right. The, it was that kind of thing. And um, when we went under... Um, and he's also observing and, and, and learning I think it was a yeah. learning process right. of uh, uh, watching the studio being built because I'd hired a really good uh, acoustical engineer yeah. from, from New York City right and I so heard our, about our, that. Our, our, our control room was pretty out there
1: yeah I, uh, I saw the uh, article that was in uh, Mix magazine oh yeah yeah and With the Fran photos there's a he, couple of photos in there not too many unfortunately but yeah, yeah it looked pretty impressive
2: so when when um when uh, we shut down, they came and some of the stuff, like, for instance, the wood floors and stuff, uh, and some of the wood, they salvaged it all. I mean, he's Portuguese. It's like, the, him and Seth were just like, you know. Pulling up
1: floorboards, literally?
2: Yeah. <laughs> Actually, my first nickname, and, and man, Seth has become such a great engineer, but he was like a little, he was a, he was young. I mean, yeah. maybe 18 or something when I first met him. Okay. And I I... Refused to learn his name. We just called him Nail Boy, Because every time I came in there, he was just in the studio removing nails. Just yeah. like, you know, 10,000 nails he probably removed. Jeez, yeah. We had a modified 2-inch um, 8-track. It was yeah. kind of rare. <coughs> it was a 2-inch 16 or 8-track. Okay. <coughs> and um, so they have, the, they have that machine over there. Yeah. Um, that was the biggest one that I had heard about. Yeah,
1: because I, I had heard about the you know SoundStation Seven closing, uh, and at the time, I mean, I didn't really have any connection to to you or the studio or, uh, or machines with maggots for that for that yeah. matter either either at that time, but uh, yeah, that was the biggest piece I remember hearing is just like oh machines with maggots got the got the two inch track the two inch tape machine from from SoundStation Seven.
2: Yeah, there was two. We had a Studer, okay, and the Studer uh, was more of um, a a newer one, yeah, and it had a. It had a twenty-four and a sixteen headstock. We had a lot of toys. It was kind of ridiculous. Yeah,
1: you guys kind of covered everything too, because not only did you were you able to record uh, bands there, but you also did a lot of like mastering projects, I believe. Well, you know, right?
2: I um, had back then. I mean, now mastering is really easy, but um, there were some tools that came out um, uh, that that made it pretty easy. So, and I wanted to help. Um, Local bands and things, so like Dancing Jake's, a lot of uh, stuff. I work with him where he'd come with his four track and we'd mix down through the board and then oh, I'd yeah. master it. Yeah, and drop dead and a ton of stuff I did like that. Okay, kind of helping people mastering for thirty five bucks an hour.
1: Right, because um, that's a huge uh, like help to to sound for a recording, even if it's from like four track, like you know very oh, minimal yeah. DIY type of recording gear, right? You know, like a typical home studio home studio recording then was like
2: you'd be surprised even some of the like the major label stuff that's recorded with great producers and engineers mm-hmm. if you listened what it was before it was mastered and after you might be surprised i mean yeah. most things also it was everyone was putting out CDs this is remember this is like um, early to mid 90s yeah so people were putting out CDs um, so they needed someone to put the the red track audio and sequence them and all that all that kind of stuff they needed help with so yeah. i did a fair amount of that Huh. Um, and uh, and we'd also uh, I was in a couple bands and things and we'd do some stuff for fun sometimes and yeah. it was pretty amazing resource to have as far as uh, the level of equipment we had and the stuff we yeah. could do there
1: so the one the one band
2: that comes to mind that I, <coughs> I
1: just have to mention because I'm personally just a huge fan and I never have mentioned them on the show actually was uh, Plymouth Rock okay because so how did that work out because. Their first day, their first full length record, he, they recorded there, right?
2: I believe so. I don't know their discography really well, but yeah. I was a huge fan. Well,
1: because I know that Jed gave me like a bunch of like demos that they had done before that came out. Yeah, but I remember that record especially, and it was an amazing sounding record. I mean, yeah, I loved it's really that good. Record. That
2: was Tom Buckland. So Tom Buckland, okay. do you know Tom? No, I don't. Uh, so he was in Neutral Nation, would be like if you want to go way back, and okay. bass player, but also he was like, um excellent, uh, live sound guy, but also a great in the studio. Yeah. And he was like one of the best kind of producer engineers around town. He floated at different studios. Um, and he also was the director of the, um, set design at Trinity. Oh, okay. You know, at the time. So, but he would do sound for a lot of people. Everyone loved Tom and Tom worked with, um, Plymouth Rock. He ended up going and working on, um, also, the Hydrogen Terrors, the last record they did, that was oh. him, and he had a studio in a building that is kind of where you know the nine hundred and three apart, like that, whatever that condos are by the mall. The ne- oh
1: like, yeah, yeah.
2: Um, there was a mill there,
1: and oh, right. he had
2: uh, I think it was called Mill Rat Studios.
1: Mill Rat, yeah, that yeah. sounds right. Okay,
2: and um, yeah, so Tom, t- but Tom did a fair, you know, you you had you couldn't just go to a sound station unless there was some kind of budget. Right. So, um, uh, you, you know, didn't do a whole lot of work there, but there, there's a couple of select projects that he did.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was a great one that I can, that I know of offhand that I can think of. That was amazing.
2: I think he worked with, um, oh man, there's a lot of stuff that came through there, but he worked with Mark Cutler there.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: <coughs> um, I don't know. You'd have to ask him exactly what he did there, but he did. Oh, he did, um, a lot of stuff and, and Rob engineered it, um, he did a lot of awesome production work with the uh, Royal Crowns. Oh, for the first or the second record? Um, It was the second one, second I guess. Second one, I guess, yeah. Yeah.
1: Okay. Yeah, I looked up... Uh, I tried to look up some information on Sound, Sound Station 7, and uh, the only thing I could really find was Discogs, and it kind of had a limited number. Like, it's, they called it Sound Station 7 Records, first of all. Secondly, uh. it was, like... A pretty good list of bands that I think the you know releases that had kind of come out of there, whether they had been uh mastered there or recorded there, yeah. Um, but I think there were some things missing too, like the Joey McIntyre thing wasn't on there. This oh, there's
2: probably a ton of stuff that was missing, yeah,
1: yeah. I think um, so. Um,
2: I mean, uh, there's some crazy stories,
1: yeah. But so, very limited information on sound station 7 online, at least for, for me to kind of like research on, because unfortunately, I was never there. Um, like I said, I think I was only in there once for like a, maybe a party or something. I don't even really remember. But um, also, what was difficult about this
2: tonight was the record that you chose, which was uh, the Wailing. I'm glad Ultimate. you're coming back to the record because Sound Station Seven and the Bitter Pillow Swallow, the compilation that I did, and yeah. then Repopulation Program, the one that Load, Load Records, there. I recorded and Load put out. Yeah. Um, it it ties back to this record in some ways because okay so the 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 album that i picked was the wailing ultimate
1: yeah which Um, is a compilation
2: record compilation record put on homestead records records yeah in 1987 and i remember seeing the advertisements for it in a magazine Mm -hmm. uh on an airplane i can really remember that like oh i gotta get that and um i was reading a magazine on an airplane and i was like i can i can remember just like it was yesterday and And being like, wow, look at all this, look at that artwork, look at all these kind of cool bands, I need to get this. Hmm. And at that time, um, you got to remember, it's 87, so no cell phones, no internet, no anything. The way things spread was through fanzines, Mm -hmm. through word of mouth hanging out, the record store was a huge deal, to go to the record store and find things. Maybe a little bit on TV, but I mean, 120 minutes? Maybe. (sighs) Like, they had... uh, IRS is the cutting edge. I mean, you could find some... Night flight, maybe. Yeah. You know, a few things. But um, you had to really dig back then, right? And it wasn't easy. You couldn't just Google something and it would come up. Hmm. And I feel like my generation... um, I was born in 70. So, like, in the 80s, a lot of people were, like, um, music historians or librarians. Like, you had to really commit a lot of time to research bands. Yeah. Um, and I was doing two things. I was going back in time like a lot of people were. And, you know, so discovering Sabbath and the Nuggets compilations. Yeah. All this stuff from the 60s and 70s that was amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was kind of um, feeding my interest. Um, but I was also trying to figure out what my, what the contemporaries were doing. Yeah. And um, compilations were kind of a good way... F- to, to find out about things. The, right. the, the other major compilation that was a big deal for me um, before The Wailing Ultimate was Athens, Georgia, Inside Out. Mm-hmm. And that's also a, um, a documentary. Okay. Which is definitely, for everyone out there, you got to see Athens, Georgia, Inside Out. Um, and it had a lot of great bands on it, but it really cemented my idea, the idea of, the, of a scene. Yeah. And how um, Minneapolis had a scene. And obviously, um, D.C. had a scene. Yeah. West Coast had a scene. Uh, I guess L.A. was very different than San Francisco. Seattle, like on and on and on. You know, Mm -hmm. there's all these different scenes. And I really became interested in um, how those form, learning about them, collecting the music. I lived for a while um, in the late 80s in Raleigh, North Carolina. Oh, yeah. And so Merge and, and Polvo and... Erectus, monotone, and um, super chunk and all that stuff was just kind of forming then. Yeah, and I just liked being around music, like communities with art, and yeah. that could be visual art or. But music to me, you know, especially as a teenager, was really exciting.
1: Yeah. Um, well, it was a really cool time for you. Obviously, you were a teenager in the uh, mid to late '80s.
2: Yeah, I was born in '70, so okay. from like '83 to. Yeah. You know, the, the, and I was, so the, there was a, it was, you know, there was a lot of really cool stuff going on, but it was also hard to find, especially I was in, uh, living in Florida, mm-hmm. living, in, living in places that were kind of really cu- cultural backwaters. Yeah. So, um, I lived in, um, well, actually in, when I was living in the Midwest, that was a college town. So college towns are usually good for Where for in Midwest? Um, DeKalb, Illinois was where I was born. Okay. But I had lived in a lot of places where it wasn't really easy to find. Until yeah. I got into high school, I was. Uh, we had um, Princeton Record Exchange, and mm-hmm. P, uh, and then Princeton's um, radio station. Yeah, that's where I. That just blew my blew my mind. Really? Um, yeah, because you. I mean, being like sixteen years old and having you know at... Midnight, the Mentors come on. Do you know the band, The Mentors? No. Yeah.
0: Um,
2: very a kind of raunchy uh, band. um Or, um, I don't know, all kinds of weird stuff.
0: Hmm.
2: Um, but, um you know, I, I had a, a definite craving for all this kind of music, but it was like, how do you find it? So mm-hmm. you had to go out and search. You had to go to record stores and things like that. Right. And the, when the Wailing Ultimate came out, um, when you got a compilation, you could go and then from every band try to find out the scene well where did they come from right so like the first track's Dinosaur yeah and from. that was before Dinosaur Jr. was Dinosaur Jr. they um, they got sued I think from a British band called Dinosaur which is why they changed the name to Dinosaur Jr. yeah yeah but at that point that song Repulsion um,
1: would you like to, to play that track just kind of get a little feel for it play a little bit sure So this was released in
2: 87 uh, so It was in 87 I got it immediately It was the summer of 87 This is between It's my Between Junior and senior In high school You know yeah. I put this And so for me This is like um, I don't know if the term Indie rock had formed Like that but Like it was just Forming around this time Yeah You know Like for me It was punk Obviously new wave um, mm. Alternative Things like that. But, um... Indie rock hadn't really, uh... Become...
1: A term, uh, yet. A term, yeah. Yeah. And And so this was... This was, like, college radio's music, too. Like, so college had... College radio had a huge influence on music... The music scene and actual, like, genre forming as well. Because, like, I feel like all of these bands around this era, through college radio, kind of got that alternative tag. Or, uh... What later on came, became grunge uh, yeah. Or indie yeah. You know So all of it
2: oh, yeah. All of it basically Kind of came from College radio Right Pretty much I mean in this case I, I can't tell you The history of um, Homestead Records that well Or Dutch East Trading Company There's which was, not much history About that either That was the other Enigma of tonight uh, That night. sucks Because well <laughs> Basically I'm pretty sure It was Gerard, Gerard Cosley And yeah. that I don't know I'm gonna, I'm gonna fuck this up But oh, don't it becomes it. Matador which a lot of Dutch people East f- training? No, or Homestead, Homestead. like somehow becomes Matador I think. Oh, okay. But yeah, it, essentially, it's New York City, right? But yeah, it, Long Island. New York City being a nexus of like where, like, with radio stations and culture and just like you know, bands playing. And, like, right. where are you gonna break? You're gonna break out of New York. So right. there was a lot of fans there and crazy stuff going on. So, but if you look at the the bands on the um, on the, the Wailing Ultimate. What they're do- what they're doing is what I was trying to do on my own, which was like l- survey America, right, and see mm-hmm. all the cre- what's going on in the underground, right? Yeah. So Dinosaur was right up here. They're in Boston. Well, no, they were no no no. Dinosaur is not, but bo- I don't consider them. That's funny because we were really talking about how when bands make it around here, yeah. they just automatically come from Boston. Right. They're Northampton. Oh, okay. Yeah. Right. So,
1: and... um, But you you glom on to, like, the the nearest major city. Yeah. And for music, But Northampton, I think,
2: is its own scene. And what was going on there was... I I, I had friends that lived there one summer and went out there. It was... It's a funky... Really? Yeah, yeah. Okay. It's like... I don't know. It's a college town. There's hippies, but there's also... It's like our Humboldt County in some ways, too, I think. You know, like, it's... Yeah. But, but... East Coast, you know, so miserable instead of like um, your typical California. Or what I think of as stereotypical kind of um, positivity. Yeah. Uh, but um, or like like so this song, Volcano Suns, yeah. Yeah, Volcano White Suns. Who? So on this record is John Williams. And John Williams um, This is later Volcano Sons Oh okay He became a good friend Of mine And who I learned A lot of of recording From Oh okay Um, So he And he ties into Sound Station 7 He did a fair amount Of work there Um, He did um, Jill and Hatfield's Record there Oh okay Um, But He had a recording Studio in Vermont That was awesome Yeah In this cabin And um, Tons of Crazy stuff Went out At that studio But The uh, Hydrogen Terrorist no, it was actually Von Ryan's Express. Their single for Sub Pop was done there, and at uh, James's studio. At no, at John Williams', John Williams S- studio sorry. up in Vermont. Okay. And what's really sad about that is that at that point it was it was the whole band and just everyone was really into Public Enemy at the time, and and Nick Atosha was doing all this like tape stuff yeah. that ends up com- coming in the Hydrogen Terrors later, like. Uh,
1: like on second It, it couple, bubbles right? up, but yeah. they
2: were doing stuff that really sounded like, um, a weird, like a, I don't know how to describe, it, like a weird punk rock Public Enemy, yeah. and um, the stuff that sub pop released wasn't that. But those that dat tape got lost, and so there might be a couple like cassettes out there, but it never got released. Yeah. Um, so. Oh, that sucks. Oh, yeah. Only half of the John Williams stuff ever got the, saw the light of day. Oh. But, um, yeah, he was in this band, and um, so that's an interesting uh, oh, okay. little... Uh,
1: yeah, I'm finding a lot of, like, really weird little indra- uh, connections between you and, uh, and all of the things that, uh, like, some of the people I've interviewed, like Peter Prescott from... Uh Mini Beast now Yeah uh, Was obviously in this band Volcano Sons Yep Um, Another thing I think Is funny is that So to go back A little bit To what you were saying About uh, trying to find a scene And trying to uh, Nourish one Kind of Is that Did you kind of Think of Providence as that Like did you see Providence As Oh yeah We were Seeing all
2: these bands And was just like This can be an amazing scene Yeah Definitely That's what I thought Um, I had been I had been around other scenes And I had Uh Kind of toured the country, and I was like, "What's happening in Providence is, it, is good or better than anywhere yeah. in America." And um, and Ben thought so as well. I think you know Ben's Ben's taste and stuff went more not so Providence centric. It went to, to, to a style of music, you right. know, yeah. um, or and you really explored noise and some really challenging stuff. Yeah, but I think when we started, we were. I'm trying to think of some of the fanzines that were out there. We were um, sending out profiles of Providence. We were promoting Providence. Yeah. And there was um, like a Providence pride, you know, definitely. Hmm. Um, I mean, I felt it, yeah. and I would always talk it up. Now, do you, would this? Do you say that this is '87-ish? No, or no, no. no. This, this is much this later. Is still, this is like pre-SoundStation Seven. This is '90s,
1: pre-SoundStation Seven. But like right early yeah. '90s. Okay. Because yeah. I mean, I. I'm actually fairly young. I mean, in the early '90s, I was like preteen. Okay. So I missed all that
2: stuff in the '80s for sure. I like the Providence scene, the music scene didn't. Well, really... I moved here in '89. Okay. So I, mi- I missed most of the '80s too. I caught some of the tail end of it. Yeah. When I moved here, there was the uh, the old living room, just you know, like where. Um, do you remember? Was it, uh, was, it, was it the spaghetti warehouse? I don't know, but it was right by the mall. There, there was a there was a building with a. Um, yeah. Okay. okay, so that was the living room. Saw some amazing shows when I first moved here. I saw Soundgarden and the Screaming Trees. Oh. I saw... Um, that was a really good show. That Loud Love had just come out. And, yeah. like, for us, I think, um, the idea of rocking and kind of grunge... Or, a lot of people were listening to um, Black Sabbath. Th- things were getting heavy. Yeah. And they uh, clearly, out there, had tapped into something. And, um they just blew the the roof off the house and Jane's addiction had some really good shows oh really um, at the living room oh yeah 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 I yeah. mean there were so many good shows actually one of the be- I saw um throwing Muses there a bunch yeah and they I always have loved them Well, the living room was was like
1: a a Nationally, a renowned place to stop. Well, at that point, you got to realize
2: a lot of those, like you know, like James Addiction, like they, uh, Perry Farrell ends up doing Lollapalooza, and like right. this is all pre-Nirvana, basically. Yeah, yeah. Right. I can. This, this I is can, before those bands became massive stars. Yeah. So yeah. it's still underground. It's still yeah. people kind of uh, going to the record store. Yeah. And yeah being still like,
1: on DIY kind of circuit. Yeah, for sure.
2: I mean. So sound uh, stations uh, on a on the compilation tip, there was uh, this was way after Wailing Ultimate but Sub Pop came up with the Sub Pop 200 yeah which was a, a, like I always bought the compilations because I'd start there right. I found a band that I liked I'd then go buy their album right but um so and that was definitely you know documenting the, the Pacific uh, Northwest scene yeah um, so so here in Providence um I was when, when I redid the Bitter Pill of Slalom compilation record I was trying to to document Providence in the same kind of way that I was seeing uh, Athens, Georgia, Inside Out, The Wailing Ultimate, although Wailing Ultimate's not a a particular town, um, Mm -hmm. uh, I just liked how people would kind of curate uh, a compilation album to kind of make a statement of some sort. Yeah. Um, In this case, it was just, uh, they were... um, well, Homestead was probably getting a lot of demo tapes. So they were they were at the the stage where people were sending them a lot of music. But they were you know, obviously Wicked Connected and um I mean Homestead and Dutch East Trading Company put out a ton of awesome music.
1: They did. Um you said Homestead yeah. out, and Dutch East as well.
2: Trading Company. They were the distributors. Distributor, when we yeah. first started doing the record label stuff, they were definitely one of the distributors that were um that would take on it uh You know, indie stuff?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they had a uh, pretty amazing roster. Uh, I mean, obviously, so Homestead Records was uh, active from 83 until 96. Okay. So in that time, I mean, there's all this this list of bands, which is, uh, to name the biggest ones, is like you got Big Black, you have Dinosaur Jr., uh, Gigi Allen, unfortunately, Green River... (laughs) Uh, Naked Ray Gun, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. So, Sonic Youth. Soul Junk is weird. That's a weird one. They're kind of like a religious band, weren't they? Like Christian rock? I don't know
2: that one. <laughs> I don't know that I,
1: one. I had a single of theirs recently, and I thought it was so strange. But, uh, yeah, a number of like amazing like bands that went on to become, have pretty successful independent careers. But yeah, very...
2: and so uh, something like the Wailing Ultimate compilation... Mm-hmm. Um, to me was one of those markers of like, you can do it. Like, right. um, like they, they were obviously a little more sophisticated and they had they were at the level and they, they were in New York, which I think was helpful. Right. People were sending them stuff. But the idea that, um, you know, you don't need to just listen to what's on the radio. You can you can DIY was, right. um, you know, back in when I was 17, 16 and got this. That was re- really cemented in my... in my mind that um, just put it like anyone can put it put it out you know
1: yeah but so even before you started a record label and before you uh, founded the uh, studio this was your idea all along was to try to not only uh, gather like gather these musicians and these bands to kind of help like create a scene but also to promote the scene
2: yeah yeah I mean I was I'm definitely I definitely when I was younger and I I um I don't drink anymore, but yeah. when I was a drinker and going out, I was the guy in the front row, like, freaking out, dancing, yeah. <laughs> and like, I was a huge, you know, fan and champion of, of these bands, and yeah. I would hang out at practice spaces. I was in a few bands, but um, nothing ever too serious. Yeah. Um, I just, I loved being a part of it, and I, and I um, love the idea that um, you could, uh, you know, do it yourself. You could record, you could make posters. All that kind of stuff was really, really appealing to me, and um, it came from uh, compilations like this, but and also the Athens, Georgia Inside Out documentary was a big deal for me. Yeah. And being really young, like 16, and going down to um, the Cat's Cradle in in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and seeing oh, yeah. the Flat Duo Jets, seeing Dexter play, um, that was another kind of like there was no one in there. There was like 10 people in there, but. Um, It was so raw and so um, heartfelt, the music. It just really kind of... It was very authentic to me. Yeah. Um, So the idea that... um, Music doesn't have to be this kind of passive thing, like where you watch it on MTV. You go to like the Dunkin' Donuts Center to see, you know, Metallica, right. which I did, which was awesome. But you know, <laughs> that's one type of thing. Right. But the idea that we could leave right now and be like, "Oh, we got to go," you know, right? Because back then, you look at um, show flyers from from a certain point, like five nights a week, there was crazy bands,
0: you
1: know. Yeah. Um,
2: Playing. I mean live music was a big deal. I don't know what killed that. I mean everyone's like oh the internet killed
1: it, but maybe well, hey, that was actually what I was thinking next was uh do you feel like the current music scene in Providence is stifled compared well, to, to the early 90s? I
2: don't feel qualified to really speak. I mean I know a little bit about it just from you know as Facebook and thing, you know, yeah. and seeing things and going out to a few shows. I also really think um my generation continued on with music longer than a lot of other generations did. In other words, yeah. like, once you hit 30 and start having kids, you weren't going to the record store anymore. Whereas a lot of people in my generation have continued to do that. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't know if it's the risk, but what happens in that situation, in my opinion, is that rock and roll is really kind of for young people.
1: Yeah, and I so suppose
2: so. My so my, you know, being on leukemia meds, Totally exhausted, not drinking, you know, and going to a show, you know, and maybe not getting even getting close because um, I don't want my ears to be, like, destroyed or whatever. Right. Um, That makes me more of an... um, I'm not an active participant of the scene. I'm more of an outside observer. Yeah. And when you're young, or at least I'll speak for myself, when I was young and had all that crazy uh, hormones and just... I mean, that's a time where music was life, you know? I mean, right. like, I saw and judged people through what band, you know, what bands you were into was a huge thing to me, you know? That, right, like, of course. Um, need some there's a lot around. of talk about identity politics now and, like, like um, and things of, like, gender and stuff. For me back then, it was, it wasn't, like, all that was blind. It was like, oh, you're, um, you like SST Records. You must be... Okay, yeah. you're in. You know what I mean? Yeah.
1: You must be a person that I can. Deal yeah, with I can relate like to limits. you. You must be okay. <laughs> yeah.
2: Um. So, uh, it was a big, big deal for me. But and you grow, you get older, and you know, you just um. I still love music, but it's not like it was then. I mean, yeah. I mean,
1: I, I remember I just to going to you. shows yeah. and having
2: my mind blown. Right. And and on a high from the show. I look for forward days to that your after. mind blown,
1: yeah. Like, now it's just like, what, what do they call that, the bang over? The, the, the bang over? The, <laughs> the, the old people that they have, the next day they have the bang over. It's uh, like yeah. if they go out to a rock show and actually, like, you know, <laughs> participate, it's just like the next day you just feel horrible and achy yeah, yeah. from fucking rocking out.
2: Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, ba- back, back then, uh, music, well, art, culture, at all was just like um, a huge stimulant to me. Yeah. yeah. Well, so then let me say this:
1: that maybe I
2: hope because I feel
1: out of touch as well from with the existing music scene in Providence. I mean, like doing the show is good for me to be able to reconnect with it because I have kind of equally, you know, stepped away for a long time because like, I had kids, and yeah, yeah. so I took on that role instead of like you know going and hanging out every night. So. I'm kind of getting back into there, kind of getting, back, getting back into that place, and trying to rediscover like, like. So, who are the bands that are that people are really excited about
2: now? I can't speak on it because I'm going to screw it up. But I'm there's a show that's going to happen here next door. Yeah. Um, called Bish Bash. Yeah. In um in in March, it's going to be part like art installation, a lot right. of visual stuff, and uh, but there's going to be some bands playing, and they're they're going through a list of fifty bands that are local to try to like you know, figure out who's going to play and stuff. Yeah. So, um, you know, I'm not going to throw out names, but I'm being exposed to some of it. It seems hmm. interesting. I think as long as you have teenagers and free time and instruments and hopefully, you know, usually like a beer or like a joint or something and yeah. get, and like put them in a room, there's going to rock is going to happen. <laughs> you know? It re- yeah. It, yeah. It, it is. And, um, whether it coalesces and becomes something that, like, they become famous or not, you know, uh, that kind of thing may happen around here. But yeah. right now, somewhere in Rhode Island, there's there's amazing rock being right. well, um I'm just way out of touch with it. Right,
1: you know? right. Well, so the, the, the last time I was here was actually because of uh, a show being hosted here, but it was more of, like, a very quiet uh, acoustic set by uh, Will Johnson, yeah. who I'm a huge fan of. I love him. Like dearly, I think his music's amazing. I think he's just a really compelling singer. Um, did, were you fans of him? Did you know him prior to? I don't to... know him
2: at all because yeah. it's all through James Dean, who's a, right. um, a, a tenant of mine. He lives in the unit right the
1: next door. Uh, yeah. But you have this great space here that you can yeah. utilize for
2: that. Like, well, I've always liked. Um, I've liked like right now this house is a, in an old auto body shop. I've always liked living in um, commercial spaces. I Like yeah. living in like even, you know, I'm going to be 50 soon. I like living, like, in a nightclub, basically, like, um... Yeah. Or in an artist's community. It's or... a hub of
1: activity, you know? Yeah. It just, has, it just draws people in and you get to kind of, like...
2: And also just, like, the architecture and, like, the concrete floors so that you can have... All right. You know, yeah. That kind of stuff. Like, or yeah. the scale of it, you know? Because right. most, most, like, a typical three-family apartment <laughs> here, you couldn't have, you know, a hundred people over for a, right. for a show. Um, I love, um... I don't like like I've lived a couple times in like traditional houses Um, I never feel comfortable I don't know Hmm. I don't know why I like the idea of being able to be like uh, let's throw a show or let's you know do an event and uh, that goes way back to Sound Station it goes back to before that it was Taekwondo Studios which was an old ballet yeah uh, studio in downtown Providence okay that was really wild. We did some really good recordings there. Hmm. We did the first Hydra and Terrors record. John Williams did that there. Yeah. Um, and a couple other things. And there was a really good show there. The Bitter Pill to Swallow. Yeah. Uh, release party. Mm-hmm. Uh, had a show there that the guys from Sub Pop were there. And that was a really that was a uh, who was that? Drop Dead, Six Finger Satellite, Ashley Monroe and the Haters, Medicine Ball. Jesus that was there.
1: Yeah, it's a pretty stacked bill. <laughs>
2: Yeah, there there was a couple shows yeah. uh, to to celebrate the release of that.
1: Cool, that's
2: amazing. All, I mean, and it goes like basically it's the also the like the mill culture in this town, right? Of uh, right that Four Thunder became so known for, but now there's you know there's a million versions of these. You don't really live in a in your typical apartment or house. Yeah, you live in an industrial or commercial space that serves as a place. Um, to have events and cultural stuff, basically. Yeah,
1: yeah. No, I love it. I mean, I, I actually kind of envy this. I would love a place like this for my for myself, but not terribly conducive for the kids. Yeah, if you've got kids and stuff. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I would I would like it. And I think they would like it, too. I mean, my, my son's just all about something that's modern. That's yeah. what he calls it. He's just like, oh, that's very modern. I like it. <laughs> he would like, if he were in here right now, he would be like, wow, this is very it's modern, very JJ. Modern. I like it. Absolutely. He, he'd... Eat this up, man.
2: Um, as much as much as I'd say that uh, rock and roll is the purview of the youth, I will say that I, I have respect for folks that are still doing it, like yeah. into their fifties and stuff, and doing it consistently. Like Drop Dead, for instance, is you know. Yeah. I remember seeing them at the Fast Forwards record show on. Um, Outside of where the rocket was, or maybe it was the babyhead at the time, okay. They had an all-day outdoor show, and Ben from Drop Dead was um, so aggressive with his microphone that he was pulling out of the PA, and Jay Ryan from Six Mirror Satellite like had to like um, basically like hold the PA in place, but was like being kind of you know uh, pulled around, dragged <laughs> around, and 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 you know the Drop Dead's still going, yeah, you know, right. still rocking out. Or, um, Brian Chippendale has been very consistent, like, he's basically doing the same thing that when, he was a year before me, um, at RISD, I think, or maybe two years, or one year, regardless. Right around the same time. He's, you know, moving into his, he's gotta be in his 40s now, coming up on 50. Yeah. He's consistently had a vision and never was like, oh, you know, um, uh, I'm an adult now. I need to like, you know, work at the bank and right. get a get a house or whatever. Like he's, um, yeah. and there's other people like that. I mean, I'm sure Peter Prescott is he's still rocking. Yeah. Right. Oh so. my God,
1: that show is he's a really amazing performer, and so, he's like in his
2: 60s. So it's possible it's possible to keep uh, to keep rocking. Yeah. But yeah. I think um, back to the the question of the scene. Yeah. I think those really happen. With, with younger people because of the nature of,
1: right. of being young. So there could be a scene, ha- scene happening right now here in oh, the, that we're not aware of?
2: I would definitely... No, there, de- there definitely is. I think it has changed with the internet, though. Yeah. People, like, because back in the day, like, you would just go to the living room because, like, you're either going to watch... Um, well, it was pretty cool. When I first moved here, Fox had just come on, so there was the si- early Simpsons. Oh, okay. So you might... Or, and you'd watch um, whatever came on after that. Um... Hmm. What was that uh, show? Love and marriage, love oh, and married with children. And married with children. Yeah. That was like a big new thing. Um, or you could go, maybe rent a, a VHS t- tape and watch something on a you know a shitty little TV. But for the most part, you went to the you know went, went out, to the club, went out to
1: the bar, see a bands, yeah,
2: yeah. And it, it, it was every night, you know. So that there's way too many different options now. Yeah. From right. stuff with screens, you can do it. You don't have to leave home, mm, it's true. or even in the scene, all kinds of different places. Back in back in the day, to me, there was, you know, the clubs, and then there was always like the underground um, warehouse scene that was coming, and coming and going. Yeah. Um, whereas now, uh, I know right 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 over here, the Columbus. Yeah. I think that's a big deal. That's they, a pretty it, big it deal. T- it took it took forever for. That got to fire that movie theater back up. Yeah. But what he needed was people, um, passionate people that were gonna um, breathe life into it. Right. And they, yeah. you know, it's a beautiful space. Yeah. I mean, for sure. But it's it's really going. I mean, there's a oh, recording yeah. studio there, and there's you know lots of lots of uh, interesting shows, big and small. Right. So, um, yeah, there's that going on. Mm. I mean. Um, but, yeah, so as far as, like, where the hipsters hanging out tonight, I don't know. I'm just here... Uh, <laughs> I
1: was hoping maybe we could get a drink over <laughs> yeah. kind of schmooze. Yeah. Get in with some of those young kids these days.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: No, I'm... Uh, yeah, I'm uh, on the couch a lot. Yeah. No, me too, man. This is this is my night out right, right here. Yeah. Um, so... Now, to go back a little bit to, to what you were saying about the industrial space and like liking uh, a, a place like this to live um, it's also conducive to working right so do you do you do any more recording you don't do any more recording do you
2: I do not do any uh, I've been th- uh, threatening to record threatening for a long time but I haven't gotten around to it I don't have any equipment yeah. I technically have free recording for life at Machines with Magnets but I can't do it with any band that would normally pay you know
1: like it has to be like some kind of project yeah
2: so we had talked about um, doing JJ and the Jets yeah with them as kind of the house band and it was going to be a compilation record yeah of just like garage music and stuff that I like that obscure stuff huh and then the the vision was to print it up as a record and drive around the country and just drop it off at Savers and, and stuff and release it that way so that it and not put a date on it so that it could kind of become like Hey, wait a second! What's this JJ and the Jets? It yeah. seems kind of uh, timeless. Yeah. So that there was there was that concept. Wow. Um, okay. Never executed. Probably won't be executed. Okay. okay. Um, Good idea. Though. But uh, I'm doing more uh, visual art. So right. painting. Yep. Um, uh, drawing. I do commercial photography. That's right. not really more just um, portraiture and things like that. That was my major at RISD. Yeah, photo. yeah. Photography. Yeah. Cool. So, um, yeah, and, and next door, it was an art gallery. So I showed my art for other other, uh, other artists and stuff and show space. Yeah. It's like a flex space where you could uh, put on anything you want, Correct. pop up restaurants. We did all kinds of stuff.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a great space. I mean, uh, I don't know what your plans are as far as like kind of having things kind of keep on coming through here like that. Like if you were kind of interested in the idea of like.
2: Becoming more of like a venue. That's shutting down. The, this yeah. uh, the um, yeah. the Bish Bash show that's coming up. off. Probably the last thing, right? Yeah, and we might do some um, shows beforehand just to like dry run it, you know, yeah. like uh, make sure the sound sounds good and everything. Mm. But um, then I have some tenants moving in. Right. We're gonna do a silkscreen screen studio in the front. Yeah. And gallery. They're gonna do the, they're, they're gonna do some things. Mm. I don't know what, but they'll just be my tenants. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I won't have access to the. That awesome space anymore, but right.
1: Now <coughs> well, there'll always be something else. I mean,
2: yeah, it's. I really at this point, uh, I, having the consistent um, rent is is going to be really nice. I mean, ha- yeah. having a space uh, that you have to um, to justify having it to to have shows or pop up restaurant or whatever we came up with ways to make money is really fun, especially at first. Yeah. You go into the year four or five, and it can kind of become a bit of a...
1: Yeah, exhausting. A, a
2: bit of a grind. Yeah. yeah.
1: Huh. Well, so, uh, but I, I bring up the space only because uh, I was saying, like, workspace as well, because of your art. Um, your your painting, I saw some of it because it was hanging up here when I was here last. Yeah. And the only other experience I had with your art was, uh, I, was I follow you on Instagram. So It's uh, oh, yeah. John, John Tabor Jacobson at at John Tabor Jacobson, right, on Instagram. Yeah, is that the handle?
2: Yep, that's my um, full name. Yep.
1: So in the digital format, I always thought it kind of looked a little strange. I, I didn't really know what it was. I didn't know if it was actual digital art or if it was a photograph of your art. But seeing it in person is really interesting because you can actually really grasp the amount of like layering that goes on in it. Oh uh, yeah,
2: yeah. I'm I'm Captain Layer. Yeah, yeah. Lately, what I've been doing is um is mainly there for a couple reasons, but One, I want to be able to do art always, just like not necessarily for showing, just for my own personal like well being. Yeah. And so with an iPad, I can do it anywhere. Like, no one can. Like, I don't have to have a a a studio. I don't have to have. I can do it on an airplane. I can do it sick if I'm in bed. Yeah. I actually first got into doing art on my iPhone when I had leukemia because I was in bed for so long. That's the Mm. only way I could do stuff. But then it's slowly morphed into um, the drawing programs that are out now and the painting simulators just keep getting better and better and better. So I'm starting right now to move into animation. And then I'm also looking at what's going on with projection. And screens like uh, 8K and mm-hmm. um, modular screens so that it takes up a whole wall and really high depth. Okay. And also augmented reality and VR. I'm not there yet. This this is going to be the year that I um, pick up some of those skills. Yeah. But I really want um, to kind of live in my paintings and you know? be able to almost like walk around in those environments. Oh wow. Okay. Um, and yeah, with any luck, by the end of the year, I'll have some some uh, examples of that. I mean, I have... um,
1: Uh Uh-huh. So would you think that your art primarily is digital these days?
2: Yeah, almost all digital. And sometimes I'll draw and scan in and I sample a lot of other artists. If I go to museums with my high-end camera and I'll sample paintings and throw it into my paintings. I do a lot of that. So if you look at this, um, so that's that's like a... um, I've been a strong or I've been but if you uh, if I go here and do the animations you kind of see like the process so and process is really important like yeah. there's I went to a really good show in England in London where
1: um did uh, you mind picking up your microphone because I want to make sure they get this
2: yeah I went to a really good show in England that was with the artist. He's an L.A. artist. What's his name? Oh, shit. It doesn't really matter, but he, he, he was doing a series of paintings that was commenting on... A painting is like the final frame of a movie, and that's all you get to see. Hmm. Um, whereas, you know, if you're, a, if you're a movie maker, people get to see the whole thing. Yeah. As a painter, you can see the final frame. Right. And I really identified with that. Like, all yeah. the things that go into... Especially, particularly abstraction at the end without the references and experience and kind of ideas it's just like that's an interesting blob or whatever and you might pick out a few things or a few references Yeah. but I don't want to um, have my paintings be like shrouded in mystery or some painters are like I don't want to talk about eye paintings like yeah. um, I actually want to make abstraction less um, kind of alienating and provide context and one way to do that is through animation or like immersive environments yeah um once you can see where it's coming from and some of the ideas that are floating around, I think it it takes on more meaning and mm-hmm. um, particularly for other people because they can see my the process. Yeah, yeah. That's very cool. I, I never really thought of it that way. I've never really been much of a
1: an art uh, connoisseur. Yeah. You know, I mean, like, I definitely appreciate some art, and I've been to obviously see some pieces of work in different types of galleries. I mean, I've even been to, uh, where's that? Picasso's, no, Van Gogh's gallery in Amsterdam.
2: Yeah, that's yeah. awesome.
1: Yeah, I've been, you know, I've been to a, seen a few things. The Louvre in, in, in Paris. Is yeah. that how you pronounce it? The Louvre?
2: I've never been there, actually. I've been to the Museum d'Orsay there, which is the Impressionist oh, yeah. Museum. Yeah. That's, that's a mind blowing. Cool. Well, um, I'll put it in my docket but I mean, I came um, here to go to RISD. And, and was a photo major but also into painting and my first um, uh, like my natural instinct is visual art not audio yeah. I come at audio um, as a fan and I play a couple chords but um, I've always been kind of in awe of musicians actually yeah. um, but then I also realized that some people can be in awe of, of like painters it's just because it comes naturally right. you know Um. And really, for me, as I was going along recording, and I stopped for a variety of reasons, but one of it was like, for me personally, I would have had to become a musician to go any farther. I think yeah. to really understand um, uh, music on a deeper level. Oh, okay. You know? That therefore, that's why you wouldn't
1: get into production, I guess.
2: Yeah, yeah, and, I, and, and really, I mean, I come at, I come at music and the recording studio and all that stuff as just an uber fan that wanted to um you know help document some stuff and push things further along i sang in a couple bands and that was fun yeah um which bands were those okay so when i was in high school i was in hatchet wound hatchet wound, hatchet wound you've not heard of it it's a we were we had one show and we had a our practice space was one of those, you know, like rental garage, like rental things with the like... Oh, yeah. Yeah. So in Florida, there's no mills to have like a practice space and there's not really any basements. So we rented um, one of those storage units and, um, you know, we'd bring a case of beer and um, we had one show and like, it was like some people from the 7-Eleven or Circle K parking lot came and like a couple girls that we knew probably played to like I don't know A handful of people Yeah Locally I sang in a couple bands um, Just for fun Like that were already established Yeah um, There was all there was always like the Going to a practice space And you know Towards the end uh, Just free for all Would take place Lots of freak jams Yeah um, The one band That I played out at In Providence Was The Unknowns Okay And um,
1: No pun intended I don't know them
2: yeah, the Unknowns, and, and <laughs> the logo of the Unknown Sonic, you know, the hat from the Gong oh. Show? okay. And we opened, actually, I have the flyer somewhere. It was it was a big show. It was, um, shit, it was the Dictators, Lightning Bolt. I um, forget who else was on that, Bill. But it was the Moby's Music, like, anniversary. Oh, okay. Yeah, thing at Ace to 20. All right. And we were the first band. Cool. And another kind of jokey, punk, rocky band.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Which um, uh, is kind of like my sweet spot. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it. it it's been more of a wannabe musician, you know what I mean? Like a, yeah. Or a fan. Like it, right. I've never really completely delved into that. My forte is more visual art. Right. So painting, drawing, photography, hmm. um, that's where I feel... Like the most comfortable. Yeah. And that definitely spilled over into the the music world because I did a lot of posters and like promotion C D covers. Oh yeah. Stuff like that, yeah.
1: Oh, okay. So then what so then how did you get into the studio? Because so you were going to RISD, you were studying photography, you're obviously a music fan, but you didn't really have any experience doing it on the audio engineering, so, right? Yeah, so
2: what happened was, there definitely had a, a strong DIY kind of thing coming from, you know, going to record stores, listening, uh, buying fanzines, buying compilations like this that clearly were um, people just saying, I'm not going to wait till be signed and go to some big studio in mm-hmm. Nashville or New York. I'm just going to do it. Right. So locally... Um, uh, who was the band? It was probably it might have been Boss Fuel. I had heard a recording and, and live, they sounded so mighty. Yeah. Um, and this recording was like it didn't capture them in my opinion. Mm. So I was like, you know what? I've gotta be we've gotta be able to do this uh you know more justice. Yeah. So I was working a little bit at the time with a guy who had a lot of skills, Toby Fitch. Uh, He was a recording engineer. He did a lot of stuff. um, And also on soundtracks. Very accomplished guy. And he was doing it on... um, He was working, I think, with Small Factory some, if you remember them. Mm, Uh, A little bit. And um, Toby was really talented. And uh, so he... And he recommended that I get a Fostex R8, which is a quarter-inch 8-track machine. Okay. And I got a Mackie board. And from that... We did um, like uh, you know the, the the repopulation program and just tons and tons of recordings. For a while, the studio, the recording studio was set up at Fourth Under.
1: Yeah, <coughs> with that set up, just the, the the Fostex and uh, Mackie board. How yeah. how big was the board? Like twelve channels, yeah, eight f- channels. Fairly
2: small board, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, well, no, it was an eight bus. Okay. So it might have been a little more, but. Um, uh, yeah, just very, very kind of rudimentary setup. Mm-hmm. Um, just captured the band's, tr- tr- you know, authentically, just like live in a room kind of thing. A little yeah. bit of overdubs, and then uh, we'd have it mastered, and that went well for a while. Um, but like any engineer kind of thing, once you get the bug, and you realize, oh well, if we had this, you know, it right. could lead to this, and so. Um, uh, the acquisition of the building was really key. Um, the uh, the, so the, the, old, the old firehouse, yeah. yeah. So once we had that, um, it just went it went kind of a little bit bananas. And that's actually um, <laughs> where I pull away a little bit from the scene and my concerns about the scene and promoting the scene because I had to put all my focus into that studio. Yeah. And my vision of like kind of forming the studio and then having Providence kind of like jump off into the world um, through the studio didn't really, it didn't happen the way I thought it was going to. Yeah. Um, so that that for me was a point where i um still really involved with music and local music, but my relationship changed to it because um, I basically priced myself out of a lot of uh,
1: local, local stuff. bands. Yeah. 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 So, well, some people still got the opportunity to, to, to work there. You know? Definitely,
2: yeah. I mean, but but um I was I mean part of it was also just it's that it's that uh, DIY thing of wanting uh, anyone can do it but also then wanting quality you right know? so um, I didn't want to ever say no to any band that, that, that I that I liked but right. um, it was it didn't it wasn't about that like um, I, I recorded a lot of bands where when I'm recording them I'm like this sucks you know but you can't say anything. <laughs> You know, I wanted to, I wanted to, yeah. uh, I maybe uh, naively thought that um, the re- a recording studio would just be bands that you liked and, you know, you'd get to record right. uh, things that you were into. But owning a recording studio means you, ha- you have to deal with all kinds of crazy wing nuts. Right. Um, wow. Anyway, so, yeah, you dealt with all kinds of wacky people. Hmm. I mean, I got in a little bit of trouble because, uh, uh, with the major label stuff, at least Rob Pemberton was engineering a lot. Yeah. So I became kind of the de facto cruise director. Like I was the entertainer and you know, I don't go into details, but bands usually when they want to go out and see a town, you know, they're not going to the children's museum. Right. They're, 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 they're looking for trouble. <laughs> so I was kind of, so uh, you were their guide to trouble. Yeah. I was the guide yeah. to trouble. Which eventually led to my own troubles, but... Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That, yeah, that all kind of... That ended... It was all like a bunch of stuff together in my, in my drinking. You know, I ended up uh, getting sober around 2003. Yeah. And uh, that whole uh, phase of my life kind of... It was a, all a mesh together. Because, as you know, the rock and roll lifestyle is very permissive of uh, people who like to imbibe. Yeah, scruples maybe, a little, little, little lax on the scruples. Yeah, <laughs> and just working insane hours. It's true. And yeah. um, I mean, it. we didn't, it, we were, uh, you know what, we were pretty professional to be honest with you because I realized early on that drinking, like certainly as an engineer, I'd never do it during. Yeah. And even for the bands, like I think with bands, like a drummer particularly, hmm. um. Alcohol in the studios, I've seen it a million times. It's a nightmare. <laughs> um, but that being said, um, it'd be really good, like if you've gotten a bunch of takes of a song with a drummer, yeah, just and have give them just one beer or her, uh, one beer, and then go do a take. Sometimes mm. the one beer thing loosens you up just enough. It, there's, so, there's a little magic there, yeah. But every beer after is. It, it just gets progressively worse, <laughs> and even worse. Th- thank God we weren't of this era, but um, cocaine in the studio, mm-hmm. because, well, it just makes people insane. It makes it also takes their judgment. Like this is the greatest thing ever. Right. Like, yeah, inflates the ego. Yeah, and so um, <laughs> luckily, I never. We didn't have like people blowing lines off the console like you hear about in the eighties and in the seventies. Um, but that being said. Um, Certainly uh upstairs, like when the bands would move in for a month. Yeah, it was like uh oh, Jesus. Yeah. You have you have, you know, f- five people living in confined space <laughs> under uh you know, a pretty stressful conditions. You're trying to make a record. <clears throat> um there's gonna be some there's gonna be some wackiness. Yeah, yeah, I bet. I yeah, once I hard. once actually stopped um a couple couple of crazy things. A lot of fighting and ball busting, especially with with guys oh, yeah. in the studio. And there was a guy trying to punch in a baseline, and people would get crazy with punching in. I was never, I would punch in, but like I wouldn't punch in a note, you know. Like, yeah. it's just hard to do. It's stressful for the tape operator or the even digital. Yeah, um, this guy was trying to do it, and he just it was just kept missing it. And he he went to take his bass head, like the the they were looking at the at the. Speakers, you know, I weren't looking at him so yeah. much, but making fun of him. He, w- he was going to come down and just take uh, the headstock and just smash him right in the head. Oh, my God. And I had to, like, stop it. <laughs> and, um, oh, man. Yeah, and living in that environment for... Because um, for a part of that, I lived there, too, in amongst it. just yeah. became over uh, overwhelming. Hmm.
1: Yeah, I guess I can imagine. I can, I can kind of figure out assume what what kind of debauchery may have ensued yes so um i don't know so that was the record that we listened to uh minus i think maybe two tracks okay because uh see this fucking record man i was i i I looked it up there it's not anywhere to be found uh as far as like information on it like any good information was really tough to come by um i I I bet you
2: if you ask a lot of people certainly around you know my age or whatever like yeah. music fans when it came out a lot of people will remember this record oh
1: yeah i'm sure that they will i mean yeah. like the the lineup as it is i'm just like oh yeah this is this is going to be a lot of fun to listen to but it's the hard part was trying to find it to listen to it
2: there was um what's the band from uh uh is it kansas city <coughs> the um squirrel bait i think is that oh yeah right yep squirrel Bait's on one yep um that was a bit i got them and then you open that door and I'm going to screw this up, but there's a whole bunch of bands because Slint and stuff comes from out of that and a bunch of other... Yeah, I thought I was a Slint fan, but... Oh, really? Like, Squirrel Bait was the precursor to a whole bunch of music that became big. It's like a lot of these bands, this is at the infancy of bands that either became big or had a lot of influence. Like, obviously, Big Black. Um, oh, yeah. Albini goes on to do all kinds of engineering, right. obviously, but also their band is influential and... Um, right dinosaur and who else is on there
1: uh the notable ones uh volcano Suns. um then i don't know if they
2: they weren't huge but no. they were mainly known as the band after mission of burma
1: yes yep i mean and and then you know peter went on to do some great things as well still breaking circuit i don't know i don't know a lot of these bands salem 66 they, death they, of samantha
2: massachusetts band that's oh, okay. A great song
1: Um, The Reactions.
2: That was a a record that,
1: because of that compilation, I went out and bought their record. It was pretty good. Yeah. I think you might know better than me as far as this, like, where these bands went to. Because, like, looking at this list now, I'm like, okay, the the ones that really stick out are Dinosaur, uh, Big Black, and Naked Raygun to a degree.
2: Yeah, Naked Raygun, I got (laughs) their, and they they blew my mind. Really? Um, Well, yeah, and and a lot of really good... um, uh, they have a lot of good albums. They had the song "Rap Patrol" and stuff, but they also the guy, I think the singer guy, went on to form the Digits, which was another hey. What are you doing? <laughs> Your cat was um, licking your glasses. Yeah, the the band the Digits, which I saw at at um Club Babyhead. Hmm. They were really good. Okay. Um, Chicago band. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Not Big Digits. The Digits. The Digits. Yeah, they big were digits. awesome. Okay. Yeah, a lot of these bands, I I kind of you know I don't know like enough um, to really speak much on them, but um, suffice it to say, I went and researched everyone, and then and then anything on Homestead, and the, and it just it became like clear that it was a nexus of, of, of part of the, the scene emanating from New York, kind of basically, yeah. right? Right. And um, I'm pretty sure the big guy there was Gerald Causley, who so. As far as the owner was concerned, yeah, or? and then he be- that became Matador, right? I think yeah, that's how it goes. I guess it did, but like I, I don't said, know. I'm Ger- not that big of a Gerard Cosley yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, he like he's a super super influential guy in indie music for sure. Um, yeah. But yeah, um, I,
1: I I remember seeing this. Like I, I just looked it up, and uh, Wikipedia was basically the only information I could find on it. And I do remember seeing like a link to Matador at the bottom, but I didn't know why. Okay. Didn't say why yeah but I but that makes sense then
2: maybe they own the rights to all this, I don't know,
1: yeah, and that would make sense that Peter had connections to Matador when Burma got back together and yep. Matador offered to put their records out yeah if they wanted to record new studio records, so yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it's kind of funny how how connected the this this realm gets, you know, you yeah, there's kinda...
2: definitely um and it's connected uh from that era in a in a you know, uh, pre-internet way. Right. So, um, either very kind of distant through like a fanzine or, or one-on-one. Like, it was really a time where you could, um, the band was playing, There was they could be staying, you know, Dinosaur was going to stay at your house, you know, oh, if right. you wanted them to. Yeah. You know, and so, there was, um, as I remember it, and, Again, this could just be because I was younger, but I have a feeling it's not because of that. There was a lot more face to face. There was a lot more personal interaction and group experience.
0: Yeah,
2: we have group experience now, but it's it's mediated through a screen. You know, like so we're like, I know a ton of people and things on Instagram, but it's only through Instagram. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah, like that person, I'm only knowing what they're projecting through like advertising about themselves or whatever, which is a totally different experience than, yeah. Hey, let's go down to the living room right. and see who's hanging out. And then you don't even end up in the club cause there's like something cool going on in the parking lot. Right. You know? Yeah.
1: Hey, so one last question. Um, how do you, f- uh, so what's the next big step? You're just going to focus on the art now, um, the, the visual art and try to like
2: do something like a, what, what's the aspiration at this point? For okay. Um, good questions. Um, so I had, I was an artist in residence at the Avenue Concept for a while. What's that? I, um, they promote public art, but also uh, graffiti as mm-hmm. well. Uh, graffiti art and just kind of street art. Okay. And I had, um, I don't know, there's, here, hold this for a second. There's like a little. Two mics. Oops.
1: <laughs> Kitty, you want that?
2: Here's a magazine put out recently, um, and, uh, this is like part of one of my paintings. And this was, um, this is, uh, like 10 years of graffiti. So I, I took down all this graffiti from the wall cause it was peeling off. And yeah. We prepped the walls basically so that other graffiti artists could come. Okay. And I took this all into my studio and I made pretty giant paintings from it. Okay. Um, so anyway, and, and I'm no longer doing this, this work. But I'm going back there uh, yeah. to be artist-in-residence and kind of work at the pay bar again. Oh, okay. And in that process, I want to get into um, uh, kind of public art, but with projections. Yeah. Like, my big thing now is um, the problem is, is that some of that stuff's pretty expensive, so I need yeah. to figure out how to get access to it. Mm. But um, uh, screens, projections, VR, AR, right. like, like I was talking about earlier – I'm definitely interested in trying to learn and uh, take my current iPad drawings and put it in those worlds. Mm. Um, I also have. Uh, May I look at that? Yeah, sure. I also have um, <clears throat> kind of a side project in these drawings of uh, music that I that I've done, and so I've um, I have some songs, some beats and stuff. Yeah. And from that. Um, it's like an it's basically like a generative art program where it creates visuals but also creates a song at the same time so I've made some paintings um, from that but I also want to um, uh, flesh out the music part of that yeah and so in other words my paintings might also have uh, um, like um, I would I would hesitate to call it music but um, an au- an audio aspect to them yeah I'll be continuing to just uh, uh, like in my in my personal <coughs> artwork art world stuff, just doing a painting drawing, um, but moving it in in and out of the digital realm. Yeah, I guess. Okay. Right now I have a show up at Pizza J. Cool. Oh, it's still going on. Yeah, and there's um, I did a whole bunch of paintings with black light, and um, some of those are up right now, and I'm gonna put some more up uh this week. Um, yeah. So if you want to see one at Jay's at PSJ's, yeah. oh yeah. okay. How long is that going to be up until? Um, <clears throat> I think they're saying the mid-March now. Oh, a little bit for a while. All right. Um, sounds good. What else are we working on? Uh, well, I'm uh, gonna do an installation as part of this Bish Bash show. Okay. I'm gonna have that's um, gonna be
1: open to the public.
2: Yeah, mine's All gonna right. be projections, beanbag chairs. It's gonna be like the the chill out room. All right. Like the psychedelic. Relaxation room. Sign me up, man. Um, (laughs) I'll think of some other stuff to do.
1: March 21st, did you say was that? The Bish Bash? Yeah. 21st? 21st. I think that's a Saturday. Right after my birthday. All right. Yep. When's your birthday? 18th. I'm the 8th. Oh, yeah. Cool. Pisces. Pisces. Sweet, man. Water sign. The fish. I guess we're supposed to get along. Pisces Pisces is supposed to get along, I I guess, with each other? I have no idea. I don't have a problem with anybody. (laughs) I'm cool with that. All right, man. Hey, well, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for sitting down with me and doing this. Then thank you for Hopefully this. Hopefully, have some usable stuff. Oh yeah, plenty, man. I mean, like, it's like like I said, the, the, this was such a strange concept actually to 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 suggest the compilation as f- the featured
2: record. My friend Jonathan said that uh, compilation's cheating, man, and I was like, no, why but, is that ch- exactly? Well, it's because well, it's a it's No, a Jonathan's experience. just a miserable. He's just a miserable. Are you talking about Weizhar? Yeah. Oh yeah. There's okay. well, so, nothing. Yeah. <laughs> there's nothing complimentary out of his mouth. Ever. Yeah. So so because um, I think he's he was also trying to figure out what he would pick, but yeah. um he did say that, um we, we had a actually a pretty heated debate whether a mixtape would qualify, and I said no, hmm. I don't think it would because it's not commercially available. So yes. So one of the parameters of this is that you have to be able to you know yeah search it or
1: well. Okay, let, 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 me, let, me, let me reiterate this just to make it clear okay. that the, the, the show has been evolving into a couple of different things. And I think that primarily now I have basically uh, declared it as being a piece of work that is influential to your, to your being, to like whatever it is that helps influence you to create so oh. as from a musician's perspective, because typically I'll just speak to musicians, but in your case, you know, obviously you're, you're an artistic person, you're, you're an artist first and foremost. So what inspires your art? Ah, now I mean, now, that, now you're blowing the, no. the, the lid off the, well, mouth. this still, no, cause actually, cause this still applies because what, from what you explained to me about how you wanted to kind of, how, f- first of all, help this inspired you to kind of find scenes, uh, promote scenes. And how you were able to, to kind of pinpoint Rhode Island as having a scene and just respecting that enough to want to wanna be part of it in one way or another, however you can get yourself in there, which for you was through recording. Yeah. Offering the service to, to get people better recordings.
2: I definitely would say that um, when I'm painting and stuff, I listen to music, yep. and I get very um, inspired by it. I also get, if I go to a good museum show, mm-hmm. yeah. but I, I sometimes will get... Literally, just like so inspired after a show that um,
1: it's You'd like, just so it's like I drank
2: 5,000 cups of coffee or something. Yeah. You, know? you want to go
1: home and get all your get yeah. all that inspiration out? And, well, you know, yeah, I
2: need to go do something. I need yeah. to Go respond. I like I like to go to I nothing better than going to a, like going out for like a cup of coffee and then uh, going to a really good museum show mm-hmm. and then going to the studio and, and freaking out like turn up the tunes and just.
1: That, that's your, your your prime day, that's that would be like your That's the ultimate day. day ultimate day. Yeah. Sounds good. I'd like to do that. JJ, how All you right. going? Thank you very much for doing this, man. I appreciate it. No problem.